the end of James. Kind of sounds morbid, doesn't it? You know, it's been about a year. I think I started September of 22 uh, to enter into this uh, book. We've had a couple of sidelines around holidays and things like that. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, we have such. Um, we come to these final verses, um, James chapter 5, 19 and 20. And it is, as we've discussed, a very practical book. In other words, a book that people were supposed to, at least in the reading of it, uh, the first ones, and I think as we've seen it, uh, make a good application. Uh, it was a letter encouraging God's people to act like God's people. Nothing highfalutin about that. Um, they were to be, as we saw, I think in chapter 2, doers of the word, not just hearers only. Uh, and not that doing the right thing made them Christians, but their relationship with Christ enabled them to do the right thing. And so that was their call. They were to be obedient to the word by the power of the Holy Spirit. As Christians, they, even as us, were to evidence their faith by walking certain ways and not by others. Simple. Uh, Some of the highlights that we had seen in that challenge that James gave, chapter 2, it was about the issues of favoritism. Remember that? The the rich came in and the poor came in. The rich guy, hey, you sit up here. The poor, hey, you stay over there. You know, the attitude of favoritism. Chapter 3, we had the destructive power of that little appendage in your, between your teeth, you know, the tongue, the, the power, the destructive attitudes of words and how they were very tearing apart within the body even itself. Chapter 4, we had talked about jealousies and angers um, amongst the brethren in other situations that existed all through the book. In other words, James is saying, these are things I see in you, and I'm not being critical. These are things that are part of your life. And these are things as Christians that need to be cleaned out. In other words, James was dealing with not perfected saints, but fellow believers who were involved in the process of sanctification. In other words, being changed. The question number 35 in the Shorter Catechism, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man, after the image of God, and enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. We have the ability, enablement by the Holy Spirit, to live as Christians and not as the world that's around us. Now we come to these last two verses, and let's just follow along as I read these. Chapter 5, 19 and 20. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth a sinner from the error of his ways shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. These two verses, and I know your minds are real sharp. You remember everything we talked about the last time I was here in chapter 5 and chapter 4. Not really, but nonetheless, trust me when I say these verses don't fit with the previous verses. It's a, a, a closing thought. It's a closing picture. And James is challenging them throughout this letter 
to deal with brothers and sisters in Christ with struggles, never favoritism, or the tongue, or anger, or pride, or jealousies, any of those. And then he comes to the end, he says, okay, in that practical application, what do we do? And he adds these two verses. It's an unusual closing, but I think it's upon his heart. Let's pray. Father, we handle this, thy word, uh, every Lord's Day, and sometimes we do it very casually, and sometimes it piques our interest, and sometimes it may bring us to find offense. Nonetheless, it is your word. And so even this morning, as we consider these verses and the intent of James in the letter, uh, guided by the Holy Spirit as he was writing for a group of believers back in his day, it has been, as all scripture is, been profitable to generations and centuries of believers, even to us today. May, Father, we understand it as it is written in order that we might profit by it, that we would honor you in our life, uh, learning to live by faith lives that we are called to live. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. First principle I think we can glean out of this, out of the uh, verse 19. Uh, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, is that the matter of professing Christians do wander from the truth. I know that's hard to believe. We gasp. (gasps) Really? (laughs) You know, err from the truth. Greatest blessing that God has given us is the truth. The truth about ourselves, the truth about himself. It reveals unto us the truth of our ruin in sin, our need for redemption by Christ, our need for regeneration by the Holy Spirit, the change in life that we have. It reveals to us the truth about the resurrection from the dead and eternal life. And the greatest discovery man can make in life is truth. Absolute truth that God has given. And I think the only thing worth believing is truth. And what saves and delivers people from dismay and disruption and all confusion is the truth. Yet, people whose lives have been initially changed by the truth can wander from the truth. That's part of our makeup. The word James uses here in the Greek is Planao, where we get the word English word planet. And in those days, the planets were looked upon as wandering stars. They moved around. They wandered. Our wandering sheep, that Jesus often spoke about. Um, the first hymn we sang, the last stanza, Mr. Roberts wrote, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I have a propensity to wander. We're foolish if we think that's not the case. I am prone to wander. I am prone to leave the God I love. But the the hymn recognizes the love that God has for us and the grace that brings us back. But again, the nature of who we are, we are people who wander. Yet why do we do it? Why do we wander from truth? Is it because other Christians are hypocrites? (laughs) Or because the ministry is boring? There's nothing about church that excites me? 
kind of wander from it. I think we have a tendency to wander from the truth because it's too inconvenient. We find that I would prefer to listen to the lie and apply the lie in life rather than to listen to the truth and apply the truth in life. We would rather follow lies because they keep our sins, our self-pity, our anger, our pride of life, our lust. We would rather be living on them than embrace the truth. It's our nature. That's the propensity of the old man. I'd prefer to go that way because it's an easier path. Everybody's doing. Brother Tim mentioned earlier, you know, we go around and everybody's just enjoying the Memorial Day, you know, or Memorial Day, <laughs> Labor Day, you know, vacation. We're down at the shore. We're doing this and that. And, you know, it's, it's, but no, not the Lord. So here James describes the sadly familiar situation of a professing fellow. Christ, a believer, maybe more than one, maybe he had some specific in, in mind, wandering from the truth. And of truth, ultimately, what is truth? Who is truth? Jesus says what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am truth. And as you know, in the New Testament, there were those who closely followed Jesus as disciples, as you read those gospel accounts. But what happened to them in the end? They wandered. The followers of Christ, those who said, we will not do anything but be followers of you, and they wandered. Because I think they loved their sin, and it made them do it. A man can be married to a woman and be father of her children, but can wander from that truth. Children can deny the truth as they look at that senile old woman there and stick her in her nursing home, and as my mother yeah, can wander from that truth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It is true. In the third day, Christ rose from the dead, from the grave, resurrected. And that is true. It is appointed unto man once to die, after that, the judgment. That is true. But men can wander from those truths. I think one of the greatest wanderers was Judas. You know, Followed him along all those years and listened to all what he did. Demas, if you're familiar with Demas, wandered from the truth. Scripture talks about Hymenius and Philetus, wandered from the truth saying, the resurrection is already passed. Don't get all excited about it, you know. They wandered from such a truth. And I think we personally know collectively over the years those who once sat with us and broke bread with us and sang with us and prayed with us. Where are they now? In some cases, indeed, they wandered from the truth. Where are they? They wandered from the truth. But why? And I think that's a good question. Why do people wander from the truth? Obviously, there can be pressures from various forms and various angles in life or ambitions that got in the way. Maybe it was financial success or immorality. Maybe it was indeed a myriad of other temptations that drew them away. And their wandering says to me, if they wandered, what about me? 
if they've wandered. Paul says, wherefore, let him who thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. If they did it, can it not be I? It almost becomes a foundational principle in the Christian life that I need to watch myself. And again, I think of all that Judas had. He sat with the others, the other 11. He heard everything. He saw the miracles. He participated in all of those events. And yet at the end, he wandered. Obviously, he had a a bent for some cash that drove him. I think even in my own day, I think of men who much better than I, women much better than I, and whose lives are now a shipwreck. What happened? Why could that have gone wrong? They wandered from the truth. Churches have been swallowed up with the same. Virtually every denomination has wandered in some form or fashion. Some of them hold denominations right off the edge of the earth. You know, you go through my my, uh, son and his oldest boy uh, spent a a little over a week in England, London, and they planned this as a father-son getaway. And I went, we went yesterday to see him, and he showed me pictures of the churches. And he said, the main churches are there, all fine. But he says, there's a myriad of them that are just beautiful stone churches, but they're not churches anymore. They're gone. They're art studios, they're restaurants, they're little galleries of this or that. You know, England! The once, you know, beacon of truth and life, sending missionaries around the world. Are we much farther behind? The whole history of the church from the end of the first century warns us of the likelihood that the professing church may go error. Paul says, beware. He says it. Beware. Take heed to the dear brothers that he wept with at Ephesus. The elders, he says, for I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, among you, among you, be part of them, not sparing the flock. Also, of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. The reality is that professing Christians do wander from the truth. They err from the truth. And it causes them to be pulled away, ultimately, from the value of such a gospel. So what does that do then? Did James leave it as, that's it? Verse 19, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, wander from the truth, and one convert him, when you hear the word convert, what do you think? It's like bringing somebody to Christ, you know. But in reality, this word convert is better understood as to bring him back. If anyone bring him back. James doesn't say, you know, guys, if somebody errs from the truth, this is a great lesson. And it's a lesson for me. It doesn't say, if anybody err from the truth, weep over it. Cry because of the tragedy of what has taken place. He says, someone should bring him back. He doesn't say the pastor should bring him back. He doesn't say the elders should bring him back. He says, someone 
should bring him back. It doesn't even say that God should bring him back, but someone should bring him back. The good shepherd didn't say to that one wandering sheep, leave him alone and they'll come home wagging their tails behind him. <laughs> you know, it doesn't say that, does it? When he saw that that one sheep was gone away, he left his 99 safe in pasture, away in the mountains, wild and bare, away from the tender shepherd's care. What did the shepherd say? Although the road be rough and steep, I go to the desert to find my sheep. He left them to find the one, the necessity to bring them back. I was kind of thinking, why didn't James kind of point out this should be kind of a spiritual church leadership here problem? You know, the pastor should be doing it, bringing the wandering ones back. You know, church elders. You know, I think there are occasions when pastors have gotten into trouble by going into a home where there's a lady or a young lady or a married woman or whatever on his own and found some very difficult situations, and that hasn't always worked out very nicely. Could even be that the pastor's own children have wandered. But somebody has to do it. Somebody has to do it. But isn't this God's work to bring them back? Of course it is. It's God the Holy Spirit who works in the heart to convict the error of the ways, to show them the truth, to bring them back. God the Holy Spirit does this. In the story of the prodigal son, there seems to have been no human intervention But in that story, God used people. God used people. God does it 100%, and we as co-workers do it 100% to bring them back. How did God bring King David back? As that old prophet pointing his bony finger at, at him, and he says, you are the one, you know. And it took him and brought him around. Three parables that we find in Luke chapter 15. The first one is the lost sheep we've talked about. And it was the shepherd who went out to look for him. And it talks about the lost coin. And how the woman gave great diligence to find that coin. Looked everywhere for it. You know. The third one was the lost son. Well, that lost son, it was the brother who stayed at home. Didn't go looking for him. It was a time of famine. And the boy had nothing, and the brother stayed at home, uh, didn't concern himself at all. There was a murderer in Scripture who asked the question, who was asked the question, where is your brother? Well, he knew, you know, he knew all along what was going on, and he said, I don't know, but he did. And he protested too much. When he was asked, where's your brother? And he says, am I my brother's keeper? Maybe not. But are we not our brother's brother? Is there not a relationship? We've come kind of use it colloquially speaking, you know, a brother or sister in Christ. What does that mean? Is it just a cute phrase that we add on? No, that we've been brought into a family and we are made brothers and sisters in Christ. So in essence, I am my brother's brother. And there's an obligation that I have in that relationship, one with another. But how do we bring him back? 
how should he be brought back? I've got two points here that I think are valuable. First of all, love for the neighbor must be a motivation in life. Love for our neighbor. Jesus said that is the second greatest commandment. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You know, how do I think of myself? So I had to look at my neighbor and here, a brother, somebody who's in the family of God, and I need to look at him and evaluate his particular case as I would myself. You know, as I would myself. Now, all of us are under the demands of the law, but if one is going to bring back a wanderer from him, he has to be known as a lover of his neighbor. He has to be known of such an attitude. The Bible commits us to the way of love. In my household, growing up, Pop was the disciplinarian. Um, Pop was a couple inches taller than I am, and his voice echoed, you know. He could give, as Debbie Zimmerman calls, you know, the stink eye, you know. You need to do something, Pop would give you the look, you know. But Mom wasn't quite like that. And they loved each other dearly, and they loved their children dearly, but hers was an attitude of love. And when there was something wrong, there were times in which she would say, wait till your dad gets home, but her attitude and her approach of love brought me about to confess it and repent of whatever it was that I had done much easier than I would have if Pop had talked to me as Pop knows how to talk. And so it is as our approach to those who have wandered. So it ought to be. Look at David's love for Moody Saul. Even though David's life was threatened by the king, yet he begged and he pleaded with God that it wouldn't have to be so. He loved Saul so much, and they wished for his return. What of our Jesus? Think of how he behaved with the wandering disciples. Kind of look at them as knuckleheads for all that they had heard. They talked about Judas, but think of all of the things that they had gleaned up and gone along the way. He could have said, you wait and see. They're going to always let you down. You know, He could have said that. These disciples, they have, I've taught them, we've, we broke bread, we've seen the miracles and all of this, you know, but you know what? They're going to let you down all the time. Look at them. They're more concerned about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven than listening to me. They're sitting over there arguing. They even had their own mother come up and try and plead the case, you know. They're not listening to me. They simply don't care. Look at Judas. I was always suspicious of him, you know. Look at that guy. He's always thinking about the money. He's gonna, something's going to happen with that guy. And Peter, he sounds too good to be true. You wait. Under pressure, he's going to crack. I'm going to be watching. Didn't say that. Then they would all run away when the soldiers came, and Peter denies him with a curse. Jesus could have said, there, see, I told you, I knew it all along. He wouldn't be there holding up the name of me. He wouldn't honor the prayers that I had offered. You can never trust men. I can never trust them. I'm just going to go out and get another crew. <laughs> but they would have all been the same. It would have all been the same. 
God incarnate is not made like that. He is not like that at all. Jesus hung with them. And he loved them. Peter and James and John and Judas, all of them. He loved them all and determined to do what was right. Even though Judas decided to sell him, he still loved him. And to be honest, there was no guarantee that we're going to bring everyone back that we have seen wander when we show love to them. But we're not doing it simply to bring them back. We're doing it because we have the love of Christ in us. And it pains us when a life goes off astray and it wanders and it goes here and there away from the truth. So I think, first of all, love has to be part of life to our wandering neighbors. We have to be understood as that. We have to be known as that. But secondly, I think that goes along with in the matter of how to bring them back. They need to be brought back, and I just use the word gently. I'm thinking of the familiar words in Galatians 6.1 where Paul says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, okay, there is somebody who is who is a mature, more mature person than the other, you are spiritual, uh, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. Meekness. Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Paul says our meekness, our gentleness, is to be known to all men. Not just the body of Christ, but how are we known? How are we understood? How do people see us? Christians are to be large-hearted, courteous, considerate, generous, lenient, and moderate. Total opposite of irritable, totally opposite of abrasive. If you have a short fuse, you're going to find it hard to bring a wanderer back because he knows it. You know? When a wanderer is there, oftentimes there is a sin that's been committed and you better straighten up. You know, I need to get this corrected. And the guy goes, you know, not listening to you. Do you really care about me? Do you really know? This gentleness shows Christ's presence and the power of Christ in life. And it honors our Lord and it pleases him. And I think gentleness is contagious. I have had occasions where I've been accused of things, caught not necessarily to the degree that the person has accused me of. And I sat with them, and I could talk with them, and I could say to that person, you know, you're right. I'm sorry. And discussion more and more, and pretty soon the other person sits there and he says, you know, maybe I was a little too harsh myself. Hmm. Maybe... Maybe, you know, maybe I shouldn't have said that in retaliation. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. You know. In a spirit of gentleness and meekness, all of a sudden the barriers and the walls, and we, when we've been accused, what do we do? We throw up the walls and we start to defend ourselves with all the verbiage we can. You know, I couldn't be wrong because it would make me look bad. But all of a sudden, here's a wandering brother from the truth Well, I need to approach him with an attitude that Christ had approached his disciples and that we are expected to do so. That's the ministry of restoration. 
through love and gentleness. So, brethren, if if you do err from the truth and one convert him, bring him back, what are the results? What does verse 20 say? Let him know that he which converteth brings back the sinner from the error of his way, shall save a soul from death, shall hide a multitude of sins. This is probably one of the hardest verses that James presents. There are a couple of others. Throughout history, it's been, who's he talking to? Is he talking to a believer or is he talking to an unbeliever? And some say one or the other. Some say it could even be a matter of both. But I hold in mind that everything that we've seen through this book, everything that he's written, he's talked to the brethren. He's talked to the brethren. So he presents this matter to them. These are people who have placed their faith and trust in Christ, speaking to a believer who has erred, who has strayed from his wandering, and turned back to God. And what James is in essence saying, it's the right thing. If you recall the last time we, were, we met, we talked about the earlier part of chapter 5, and he talked about those who were sick. Remember? People who were waylaid in bed, couldn't even get out of bed. They were so ill. And they called for the elders of the church to pray over this person. You know, earlier he said, if you, if you have a trouble, pray. Well, this guy is in such a bad shape that he couldn't even do that. He had to have them come and pray. Well, why was he there? And it could very well have been that it was a matter of sickness, sin, that had entered into his life and that God was using that to knock him down so the only thing he could do is repent and be brought back to health and strength. A couple of cases mentioned in Scripture how this is not an uncommon thing. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. Well, they were in good health until one, <laughs> until one minute, you know. And he says, uh, you did this and this and this, sold this property and you gave this money and you said that's all and you lied. And then boom, there goes Ananias. And Sapphira comes in, he says, oh, what happened to him? And boom, she was done, you know. Sin can be taken in the life. It can all be to be the extent of it. He says that was the case. First uh, Corinthians 11, verse 30, Paul says to the church there, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Well, that sleep there is the sleep of death. He's saying, you Corinthians, you're sick, you are weak physically, but some of you have died because of the sin that's involved within the lives of the church. First uh, John five sixteen and 17. If any man see his brother sin, a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and, shall, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin and not unto death. So John writes and he says, eh, there are some sins, you know, not unto death, not that severe. But what happens when we start with sin? Where does it go? To another one. That wasn't too hard. Let's do another one. How about something a little bit bigger? How about, how about a grander sin? How about, and then all of a sudden it's snowballed and the guy finds himself so in meekness, humility, and love. 
We need to be instruments to bring this person back to the Lord, this wandering brother, probably averting a premature death. And James says, he hides a multitude of sins. God only knows a number of sins. But again, if one sin is not confessed, it can lead to another and to another and to another and deeper and deeper sins. And it becomes a multitude of sins if it's not dealt with and confessed by the Lord, to the Lord. Pastor and author Brian Bell writes this little paragraph and asks some questions. I think it's pertinent for us today. Can you detect when a person, I'm sorry, can you detect when a fellow believer starts to stray? Are you truly concerned? What do you normally do? How do you handle it? Are you too harsh? Do you not say anything so that not to offend? Is there anyone you know of right now that you should talk to? Will you try to help? Will you wait too long? Who do you want to need to swim out to and to rescue? Don't let them go. If they fight you, back off and wait till the right moment and get in there again. Get a life jacket around him. Get them to shore. There are cases, I've not experienced it myself, but there are cases when people are drowning and the, and the lifeguard goes out to rescue them and they just start fighting off the, uh, the lifeguard. You know, don't touch me, I'm trying to save myself. And there are cases when we come to a brother or sister in Christ who's erred and all of a sudden they throw up the wall and you're not going to tell me I did that. Well, back off. But the life jacket has to be on them. Rescue them. Bring them back. Now, although I believe this has been written to believers, concerning believers who have wandered astray, I hold this out as just important for the lost. For those who have never known Christ. To cover a multitude of sins. To rescue one from the depths of depravity. We watch them daily sometimes. They can be close to us geographically, physically. They can be people we've known all our life. They be people we surround ourselves with, and we know they are spiritually deader than a doornail. And yet we need to understand their lives need to be rescued. They need to hear of Christ and the free gospel message that is offered unto them. And think of the multitude of sins that are forgiven there. Think of the life's direction. Think how those of us who are believers, think where we would be today if it wasn't for Christ. Think what would have happened to us. I can only imagine. My mind goes a myriad of directions, of places. If it wasn't for the prayers of some people and the, and the kind intervention, you know, sitting next to us and talking to us just nicely, you know, family and friends, and then a message from the pulpit, and all of a sudden, you know, it was like a laser, you know, that, that was it. To be rescued, you know. And, and we say, you know, where are they now? I've talked to people who have, I was in the Navy, and I got called a couple guys that after I came to Christ and wanted to know, have them know. And one fellow, we were, we were buds, oh, for years, you know. And I called him up, and he's down in Texas, and he just got a divorce, and he was a drunkard and a skunk. 
He wouldn't hear of what I had to say. Not one, one, not one word. And I could have been in that same direction because we did everything the same. Different people along the way, and yet Christ rescued us. So he presents unto us these valuable truths. Let him know that, we, that he which converteth brings back or rescues the sinner from the error of his ways, shall save his soul from death, and that's an eternity in hell, shall hide a multitude of sins. And it's not done by you. It's done by the Spirit of God, but be an instrument of what God can use. James says, of all of the things we've talked about in this letter, he says, this is with the key of I can, I can criticize all of you for all of the things you've done. Chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. I can criticize you all, but unless you know the value of changing those criticisms into praises, you know, it's not going to mean a thing. And that's what he did. May that be the byword for our hearts even today. Shall we pray? Oh, Father in heaven, our offer up uh, of our words of praise for your kindness, your long-suffering, your tender mercies, your abundant grace, and your love to look upon us when we were unlovely, to redeem us when we were enemies of yours, to rescue us from the pit, and to draw us up to be called the sons of God, to bring us into the family and the household of the eternal God, and to allow us to be your ambassadors, to be your representatives, to be your disciples, to be your children. And we recognize, Lord, that that comes with responsibilities. May, Father, we be courageous by the guidance of your Spirit to speak truth, to defend the truth, to proclaim the truth. We think of those who have wandered from the truth. May we, in love and humility and meekness, come to them, and plead with them. Give them that which is necessary to bring them back to your fold. We can find the, 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 the shepherd going out and wandering the fields and the, the hills and the mountains to find that one. Oh, Lord, bring that heart's attention to us today. And for those who have never known Christ, for those, Father, whose lives have been wrecked by the sin of their first father, Adam, and have lived in such a disarray, even disguised, thinking they're pious, pious and, and holy, but they're not because they're not in Christ. May, Father, we spend an opportunity upon our knees to pray for them and to allow ourselves, if it be your will, to be an instrument of grace to rescue them from sin and misery. Lord, our lives are in your hands. Father, redeem these thoughts for your, for your honor and glory in Christ's name. Amen.